I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, legendary journalist James Bamford is perhaps most well-known for lifting the veil of secrecy around the National Security Agency by way of his reporting in such books as The Puzzle Palace and Body of Secrets. He's also the author of one of the most critical explorations of 9-11 and the Bush-era War on Terror, a pretext for war. His latest book is Spy Phil, Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. He joins us on this edition of the program to discuss that book. We'll be covering a number of different topics, including the leak of U.S. cyber weapons by an entity known only as the Shadow Brokers, which could have caused a near-cyber apocalypse event, UAE and Israeli spying, Russiagate and Maria Butina, Hollywood producer Arnon Nochan, and nuclear smuggling, and, perhaps most explosively, the portions of Bamford's book, Dilling with alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and the Netanyahu government of Israel. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. This is a comprehensive and wide-ranging interview, so let's get right to it with James Bamford, author of Spy Fail, Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to have on the show. I would say he's 
one of the leading journalists on subjects related to the national security state. Uh, so specifically, he's known for writing about the NSA, uh, going all the way back to 1982 with his book, The Puzzle Palace. Uh, and he's also written uh, follow-ups to that book, such as Body of Secrets and The Shadow Factory, as well as the great book, A Pretext for War. Uh, he has a new book out, Spy Phil, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. James Bamford, welcome to Parallax Views. Uh, thanks, JG. Glad to be here. Thank you. So, uh, James, if you can, maybe you can tell us uh, a little bit uh, first about how this book, Spy Phil, uh, ties in to some of your other works, going back to Puzzle Palace and the other books I mentioned. And uh, maybe what are some of the similarities and differences between this new work and then your previous works? Well, the earlier books, uh, The Puzzle Palace and Body of Secrets and the other books that I've written on NSA and so forth, are uh, they looked at what the U.S. was doing in terms of eavesdropping on foreign countries and to some extent on, on American public. So it was sort of focused, uh, those books were largely focused uh, outward. And this book is more or less focused inward. Nobody's really taken a close look at the uh, workings of the U.S. counterintelligence organization. So... I was looking at uh, uh, spies in the U.S., uh, um, uh, activities such as covert op operations in the U.S., and how the U.S. was able to uh, find them or uh, uh, stop them. And uh, what I found was that they weren't very good at it. There were spies uh, a lot of places where they you know, just never bothered to look, and uh, a lot of them caused a great deal of damage. What initially sparked your interest uh, in writing Spy Phil? I assume you wrote it around the the time uh, that we were sort of um, living through the COVID era, right? Uh, so how did Spy Phil come about as a book and, and why why did you want to write it at the time you did? Well, the pandemic came. So uh, for a lot of writers, that was a very good time to uh, focus on some new project. And, and so that's why I did that. I thought that... Uh, I'd put the pandemic to use and and uh, use it to write a new book. So uh, I'd been thinking about this for quite a while. I'd focused on a number of issues that relate in 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 the book. Uh, I've been a um, uh, consultant on a number of legal cases involving espionage and so forth. So I had a fair fair amount of background uh, on a lot of these topics and. What I like to do is take these individual topics of uh, 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 spy spies in Hollywood, for example, or whatever, uh, and uh, or, or you know major spies at the NSA, and look at them um, in sort of a uh, um, novelistic way, if you, if you want, uh, you know, using a lot of color, using a lot of uh, techniques that you use in novels. In other words, write it as a story. It's not a a lot of facts, facts after fact after fact. These are stories about people and how this happened, uh, what they did, and then how how they were caught. So they're they're very interesting in terms of uh, the the uh, the uh, story aspect as opposed to just the uh, you know just the facts, ma'am, that kind of thing. I want to get into some of the specific cases you cover uh, in Spy Phil, but of course, something I find interesting is that 
you know, this issue of uh, intelligence failures and what I would call intelligence disasters is not necessarily that new. I mean, we have very famous cases such as uh, the case of Robert Hansen, uh, the Jonathan Pollard case, which you touch on a little bit in the book. Uh, maybe you could compare those very famous cases to some of the ones you cover in the book, which I was less familiar with. I was surprised. I did not remember uh, the Shadow Brokers uh, case uh, until I read your book and also uh, the the case of Hal Martin. Uh, how would you compare those cases you cover in the book to maybe these famous cases like the Robert Hansen case? Well, funny you should mention Robert Hansen. I'd known Robert Hansen for years. Uh uh, when he was at the FBI, he was uh, uh, one of the senior FBI agents, and I was working for ABC News as the investigative producer for Peter Jennings. And uh, so one of my jobs was developing sources. And uh, so I met Hanson, and we developed a, a you know, a, a sort of working relationship. I was a writer. I was a reporter, basically, for ABC, and he was FBI. So we get together every once in a while. So it was an enormous shock for me to find out he was uh, uh, probably one of the biggest Russian spies in U.S. history, the number of people that were killed because of his espionage. So the difference between um, Robert Hansen, who was a, uh, a spy for um, Russia for a long time, 20 years, um, and he would take documents out of the FBI and put them in a dead drop. It was classic espionage. Um, the difference with uh, the shadow brokers and Hal Martin, for example, are extremely different. Uh, just Hal Martin, for example. Um, well, let me back up to uh, Ed Snowden. Uh, Ed Snowden uh, leaked a lot of documents from the uh, from the NSA. He walked out with what they consider about a million pages of documents. He put them in flash drives and was able to get out of the building with the flash drives. After that, um, you know, and he didn't he, he didn't do that in any espionage forum. He did that to leak illegal illegal US activities to the press. Um, but after he did that, the uh, there was all this uh, commotion about uh, securing the NSA, making sure this would never happen again. And uh, three years later, they uh, finally catch Hal Martin. Uh, until they caught him, he had already stolen over a half a billion pages of documents. And a lot of that was after the Snowden affair. So um, it showed how, how badly uh, the security was there. You have somebody that can walk out of the, actually the most secret part of, of NSA, uh, organization called TAO, um, with, uh, uh, half a billion pages of document. Again, they aren't, you didn't walk out with the actual pages. You walked out with the documents on flash drives and so forth. So again, I was going to uh, say too, not to interrupt you, but he also has like a, a kind of history behind him, like psychological issues and whatnot that should have been red flags to the NSA. Yeah, he right? was sort of the poster child for a security risk. Uh, he was uh, uh, drinking too much. He, uh, uh, he, uh, had psychological problems they only discovered afterwards and so forth so there were a lot of you know and he would uh he wasn't careful i mean he his car was packed with all kinds of secret documents they were like uh, uh wrappers from a fast food restaurant they were just laying there so every day he would drive in past the guards and drive out and there's a document sitting there so 
there were a lot of uh, things that he should have been caught and he, he never was. And again, this is after the Snowden. Case. Yeah, we're talking about like, I think it was he removed 50 terabytes of data from yeah. the NSA. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> 50 terabytes. Yeah. And that sort of translates into about half a billion pages of documents. So um, so that's a lot. That's the most that's ever been stolen, I think, anywhere in the history of of the planet or something. So, and then after him, or actually about the same time as uh, as um, as he was doing that exfiltrating of documents, um, there was another group that uh, came along. It was called the Shadow Brokers. Um, I did a lot of looking into the Shadow Brokers. To me, it looks like one person who also worked at NSA and also worked in that very secret unit, the TAO. He may have worked closely with Hal Martin. So um, uh, after Hal Martin, uh, around the same time Hal Martin was caught, the shadow brokers began releasing uh, a lot of materials. But what they did was um, uh, very unique. What they took were uh, the cyber weapons. In other words, they stole about uh, three quarters of NSA cyber weapons. These are digital cyber weapons. They're extremely dangerous. And they have uh, code names too. Like I, I think the one is Eternal Blue and then Eternal Romance, right? Yeah, they all had co all the cyber weapons have code names. They're, uh, uh, this was Eternal Blue and there were other Eternal, which were in the same family. And then there's a lots of, they have lots of, of uh, cyber weapons. So uh, they were stolen and uh, this, person who called himself the shadow brokers put him uh, put a notice uh, online saying I have all these uh, cyber weapons I stole from NSA and I'll sell them to the highest bidder so if you want to start bidding for them let me know and I'll uh, I'll sell them to you uh, well he didn't get many bids I mean you got a few and uh, so it wasn't working out very well for him it went on for months and months and months and the FBI and the NSA are searching all over for this guy because they realized he had the real thing because he put a sample up there on the internet and they realized he really does have the uh, cyber weapons. So now they've got some guy out there that they uh, have no idea, presumably it's a guy, um, out there with uh, uh, three quarters of NSA cyber weapons. <laughs> it's like stealing loose nukes or something. And uh, putting him up for auction. So um, he was out there. He had these uh, cyber weapons. So the sale wasn't going very good. So what he did was then um, uh, uh, got frustrated and he just sort of threw them up onto the internet. He basically posted all the uh, the uh, cyber weapons on the internet. Yeah, and I was going to say he gave out like the password, right? It was, it was something like password equals re, yeah. like the alt-right sort of slogan at <laughs> yeah, the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he had the he had all the cyber weapons locked into a a sort of vault that was sealed with a password, and and that's what he did. He he uh, after he got very frustrated, he he uh, unleashed the password. He opened the password up on the internet for anybody to read, and um, and that gave those people whoever opened the Pandora's box access to the. Uh, all these NSA cyber weapons. Well, I mean, the average person isn't going to pay any attention to that, but people who are adversaries certainly paid attention. 
So um, uh, the North Koreans uh, paid very close attention, and so did the Russians. So they both uh, uh, downloaded these cyber weapons, and then they used the cyber weapons to attack the United States and numerous other countries. Yeah, could you delve into that a little bit more, like the the sort of cyber uh, pandemic that comes out of uh, this whole fiasco with the shadow brokers? Yeah, it's really fascinating because I trace this whole thing from the theft of the cyber weapons by the shadow brokers to the worldwide cyber pandemic, which almost joined the worldwide COVID pandemic. Um, so what happened was the uh, shadow brokers uh, stole the material, stole the cyber uh, cyber weapons, um, put them up. Somebody, uh, he put up the code word for the, uh, or the password for the, the vault, in which he had them all. And then at the same time he was doing that, uh, the North Koreans, Kim Jong-un and so forth, uh, he has a very, Kim Jong-un has a very sophisticated uh, cyber organization. Um, you know, he's like one guy against the world there pretty much. Uh, so he had to develop uh, ways to defend the country. And that was what this, uh, the nuclear weapons are for. But he also wanted to develop an offensive capability. And he did that with uh, building up a, an enormous sort of his own NSA, which was very sophisticated. And a lot of his people were extremely well educated in terms of math and cryptology and so forth. So um, so the person who was in charge of, uh, of well, Kim Jong-un uh, sort of put the onus in terms of developing cyber weapons um, in terms of his own equivalent of NSA. And that organization came up with a very good uh, uh, cyber warrior who was looking for a way to attack uh, the United States, um, but not just attack it, but uh, 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 try to drain bank accounts and so forth uh, with, a, with a ransomware. In other words, sending out a... a, a, a uh, cyber weapon that uh, forces somebody to pay in order to get their information back. So he was developing that. The problem was with most cyber, uh, you can attack a computer or you can attack a network of computers. Like if my computer was attached to 20 other computers, you can get to those 20 other computers through mine, but you can't get to somebody in California necessarily or whatever. So he was looking for a way to uh, uh, expand his uh, universe in terms of who he can attack. And the best way to do that is with what's known as a, a zero day exploit. What that means is it's a link in, in millions of computers around the world. This com millions of computers around the world have that same uh, flaw in them. And so if, if he can find that flaw, uh, he could get those computers all over the world. And that's what NSA specialized in, was developing these zero-day exploits. And again, th it's the equivalent of uh, having a bank vault or, or a bank, say, um, and, and uh, you find that there's a little hole in the back that the construction people didn't think about, and it leads right into the vault. 
so you can crawl into that little hole and take everything out of that vault, but you're the only one that knows about that. So you have exclusive access to that little hole in the vault. Well, that's the same thing as a zero day exploit. Uh, all these computers around the world have this one fault, this one little hole in their vault. And uh, the zero day exploit is designed and it's extremely difficult to find these and make these. That's why NSA values them so so uh, uh, carefully. And, and so uh, they had these zero day exploits and that's what the um, shadow broker was able to steal. And, and that's what the, uh, the North Koreans were able to put into their cyber weapon, the zero day exploit. So now, Instead of just attacking, you know, uh, uh, a company or a uh, uh, a network someplace, they can attack people all over the world. Everybody that had uh, Windows computers, for example. Well, you could attack things like hospitals, even essentially. Every anything, anything that had a Windows uh, Windows program um, was vulnerable, and that was the beauty for NSA. They could they could attack people in Russia, anywhere, as long as you had an, uh, a Windows machine, a Windows uh, program, they could get into it. So now North Korea had that. And so what they did, uh, uh, although there aren't, <laughs> they aren't as sophisticated as, as NSA. So um, they were able to put this zero day exploit into their cyber weapon. Uh, and again, they wanted to attack the United States. But they, uh, it's the equivalent of making a, uh, a missile, a, uh, um, a long-range missile, uh, but you haven't really worked out the guidance system exactly right yet. So that's what happened was he, uh, he launched his cyber weapon to attack the United States. But because it had the zero-day exploit on there to uh, attack Windows, it attacked Windows all over the world. And so uh, it began in England. Uh, the attack began in England. So all of a sudden, this hospital in England, a huge hospital, all the computers just shut down. And there were there were people on the operating table. The lights went out. There were all kinds of major problems. They were sending people that were in there for critical operations home. And then it went to another hospital in London. And then it went all over the hospitals in London. And then went all over the hospitals all over England. And then it jumped the uh, English Channel and began not just hospitals, but all kinds of uh, trains and everything else in Europe. Um, and then it kept moving further and further all through Russia. It started sh shutting down things all through Russia and China, uh, on through uh, Southeast Asia and so forth. And it was on its way to the United States. And it was just going this, uh, you know, like uh, just rapid fire um, around the world. But uh, there was a, a guy in, in uh, London who was from the United States, worked for a cyber firm. And he just happened to be there. And uh, he, you know, partway into this, he saw what was going on. And just for uh, the heck of it, he just tried uh, uh, trying something out to try to stop it. And what he did was he came up, he sort of figured out a kill switch for the uh, for the cyber weapon, uh, for the North Korean cyber weapon, and uh, so he was able to launch that kill switch, and then that stopped it before, largely before it got to the United States, but it affected the entire world, and it was given a name called WannaCry, uh, which was probably the worst uh, cyber attack in world history, um, and again, it all started 
with NSA being sloppy in their security and and after the North Koreans used it, the uh, the Russians also got it, and then they attacked Ukraine with it. They attacked uh, all these uh, uh, financial uh, firms and, and financial centers all throughout um, Ukraine with it. But you know these cyber weapons don't know borders, so uh, immediately it it began breaching borders, so just like uh, the one from North Korea. And that one did uh, attack the United States and shut down a number of hospitals and, and created enormous amounts of damage. So all this was created by this uh, sloppy security. And that was one of the reasons I decided to write this book, because nobody, again, these are fairly complicated issues and and actually getting information and all that's fairly difficult. But that's sort of where my expertise is, is that is sort of understanding how this works and then putting it in a readable form and getting the information from agencies like NSA and so forth. So uh, so it was fascinating to take this from uh, sort of the very beginning to uh, the very end and, and see how damaging one leak can be. So on this whole issue of, uh, you know, the shadow brokers, and we still don't know who that was that did that. Right. Uh, the FBI it does never seem... got anybody. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I was going to say, uh, is there any significance to the fact that this uh, person calling themselves or people calling themselves the shadow brokers, it sounds like they were kind of like these, um, like very far right, very anti-Democrat, uh, you know, and sort of just, it, it sounds like they were political, but sort of in it for the money. I thought it was uh, interesting when they released the password, they wrote, uh, you know, Maybe if uh, if all surviving World War Three, the shadow brokers be seeing you next week, who okay. knows what we be having next time? Uh, you know, and it, it just sounds like a, a very strange character that we never caught. Is there any significance to that sort of, um, you know, just right wing element to this this shadow brokers well, character? One of the things that made it really interesting. It wasn't just that there was this unknown presence out there that released the the material. Um, he he was constantly communicating. He was constantly sending emails about opinions, about himself, about all kinds of things. So uh, again, you really had to do a deep dive to get all that material and then analyze it and put it all together. And that's what I did in, in Spy Fail was to um, sort of take a look at this person because he put so much out there for, for many, many months about himself and his views so yeah so uh, much so that it's almost you can sort of narrow down who it could be like on a certain level like you you can uh, assume that it's probably a younger person especially because they call biden dirty grandpa right uh, yeah. you can assume it's a male et cetera, et cetera. yeah there were a number of clues in there and that's what i did in the book and spy fail was to try to analyze who this person was i you know not a name but you know it put as much uh, character into him as possible in terms of who he is. So, yeah, he, uh, uh, I thought he was probably, uh, probably late twenties. Maybe uh, he called uh, Biden dirty grandpa. He mentioned that he'd uh, basically indicated he'd been in the military, which is most of the way a lot of the people that work in NSA previously had military service. Uh, so he was previously there. He, he, uh, he seemed to be a, uh, uh, a hacker. I mean, that's what the uh, NSA employees and TAO 
that's uh, because they're hacking, you know, Russia and all these other places. They're they're experienced hackers, and they don't particularly like very much the the uh, the sort of anti hackers, the uh, the people that are uh, uh, cybersecurity people and so forth. So uh, so he uh, downgraded or, or uh, wrote derogatory things about some of the uh, cyber security people and all that, which you know maybe indicate that he was. Uh, um, you know, a cyber warrior, a, a hacker, and so forth. And he, uh, at one point, he said that uh, uh, the CIA's cyber capability was second to NSA's, which made me, you know, again, believe he's uh, with the NSA and uh, was with the NSA. So there were lots of things. Uh, and, and then his personality uh, came out quite a bit in the uh, in his writings there. He was definitely far to the right. Um he was a, you know, constantly talked about how he supported Trump and he voted for Trump and, and then he was very disappointed. Uh, he had a sort of a libertarian or um, um, uh, a sort of a libertarian streak to him. He was anti-war. Uh, that was one of the things he was very much against. So he was very angry when Trump. Uh, began to send uh, uh, troops or aid, whatever, to Syria and so forth. So he, he complained about uh, that and, and Trump shouldn't have been doing that and all that. So you read a lot of that stuff. You could start putting together who this person was. Uh, he listened to right-wing radio. He, yeah, he was uh, a big Mike Savage fan, right? Yeah, exactly. He listened to Mike Savage. And, and um, so, you know, it wasn't really that difficult to put all that together. Um, and that was one of the things I criticized the FBI for. I'm saying, look, I mean, you basically know where this guy worked. You know how many, you know, everybody that works at NSA, you know, the time period when this happened, you know, a lot of personality about this person, uh, you know, where, what he was in the military before and all that, you know, why haven't you been able to catch this guy and all that? And I was so, going to say, know, would you tie in the shadow brokers case to like, I know a lot of people have talked about this issue of like domestic extremism or right-wing extremism on the U.S. and how we've sort of uh, turned a blind eye towards it over the years, instead focusing on things like, um, you know, jihadi terrorism. Do you think there's parallels there? Well, yeah, the um, uh, I think the, the main problem was that the, uh, well, the FBI isn't very competent when it comes to Counterintelligence is the theme of my book, you know, the, the collapse of U.S. counterintelligence. So um, they get uh, hooked on these uh, uh, what's in the news. So after 9-11, they went after all these um, Muslims, even though they're, you know, 90 percent of them had, had done nothing. But they focused on that uh, because that was the hot thing. And then uh, uh, during uh, Russiagate, uh, they were focusing on um, on Russia, uh, which didn't really have any spies here. I mean, they, uh, you know, they don't want their spies caught, so they make them diplomats and put them in the embassy, so they're not uh, able to be arrested. Um, so uh, they went on this mad hunt for Russian spies. And here, you know, you have the shadow brokers uh, releasing all this material, and they don't go after that. And they, um, um, you know, took them years to find Hal Martin and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, so that's one of the complaints I had was that they uh, they were going off on these tangents, going after Maria Butina, for example, 
who was a uh, grad student at American University and did nothing instead of going after the shadow brokers and so forth. So um, it was much easier to follow a grad student at American University than track down this mysterious sh shadow broker. So those are the things I get to in the book, how the, uh, how the F FBI uh, to this day has never tracked down uh, somebody who stole three quarters of America's cyber weapons. Uh, and put them up uh, on auction, and then uh, allowed uh, our adversaries, North Korea and, and and Russia, to get hold of them, cause enormous damage around the world with the cyber pandemic. So that person's still out there; he's still walking around. Um, uh, half jokingly, I said that uh, you know, based on his writings and what he was saying, you know, he may have been one of the people uh, on January sixth at the Capitol. So. Um, so anyway, those are those are the fascinating aspects of writing Spy Fail was the fact that I was able to actually, you know, to some degree, get into the minds of some of these people and, and find out why they were doing it and how they did it. And and uh, and then look at the uh, what the what damage was caused and how the FBI failed to catch him. So there, there's a few things I wanted to unpack there and we'll get back to Maria Putina, but but. I want to get to that later. Uh, something I want to talk about, you mentioned incompetence. Uh, I know that you also talk about this problem of politicization. And I've only heard a few other people talk about this issue when it comes to intelligence. Uh, so uh, someone that I'm familiar with is uh, Melvin Goodman, a former CIA analyst, oh, yeah, who talks sure. a lot about the politicization of intelligence. So what do we mean when we talk about uh, politicization of intelligence? And what are the pitfalls of that politicization? Well, like I just mentioned, uh, after 9-11, uh, you know, the political thing was to go after Muslims, whether or not they did anything. So they did that, and they arrested a lot of people that should never have been arrested. Uh, um, that's one form of politi politicization. And uh, again, during Russiagate, they went after looking for uh, uh, Russians, and they couldn't find any, so they went after us grad student who I wrote a long article about in New Republic uh, saying the spy who wasn't. And then I have two chapters in my book in Spy Fail about Maria Butina. So, so we also see this with, um, you know, the persecution of certain whistleblowers. I know you talk a little bit about uh, John Kiriakou, uh, reality winner. It seems like uh, we're often, often going after these whistleblowers that may have not done that much to right. harm national security, but we go after them instead of these characters like the shadow broker. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's why I was bringing up Maria Butina, for example, who was a classic case. And and then uh, Reality Winner is another one. She leaked one document, you know, that uh, caused virtually no damage or anything, um, unlike the Shadow Brokers or Hal Martin or, um, you know, some real spies and so forth. Or, uh, I mean, neither, neither of those two people were spies, but... You know, the point is that they uh, sort of uh, go for the um, uh, shiny apple hanging from the tree that's easy to pick off. And and, uh, and then they they avoid going after uh, uh, Israelis. Israelis come over here, they do spying, and they don't bother uh, arresting them, even though it's blatant. And even though it's uh, a very, uh, uh, I mean, you could... You know, the, the evidence is there and they don't bother going after them. So that's what I'm talking about, the politicization of counterintelligence. So they'll go after the shiny apple, the Muslims or the um, uh, or, or the Russians uh, uh, and end up, you know, arresting innocent people. And then they'll 
they won't go after the the hard cases like the shadow brokers or or they'll fail at going after them or else they won't go after certain cases like the Israelis. When it comes to Maria Butina, I, I know I'm going to have at least a few listeners that will say, ah, oh, she was the 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 uh, evil sex pot Russian agent uh, trying to sell sex for power. Uh, but you've actually spoken to Maria Butina uh, and you also mentioned that Mueller and his investigation didn't really even look at Butina as, mm-hmm. as being involved in any of this. Uh, now she's in the uh, Russian Duma, right? Um, and she yeah. probably does not like the U.S. after what happened to her. So w- what do you say to those people that still think, oh, B- Butina was just a Russian spy? Um, h- how do you like respond to the people that hold that belief? Well, read my article in, in the New Republic or read my book. That's one way. I mean, the the... I knew Maria Botina when she first came over here, when nobody ever heard of Maria Botina. I was the uh, national security columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. And uh, so I'd go to a lot of uh, functions uh, where there is, uh, um, you know, discussions, uh, deep discussions of Middle East foreign policy and all that. Maria Botina was at a few of these because, um, I'm sorry, uh, because she was a grad student at American University studying international relations, and she was from Russia. So she was obviously interested in worldwide uh, international relations. So uh, uh, I was at one of these uh, meetings, and I told somebody that I was planning to go to Russia. I was going to take the Trans-Siberian Railway all the way from Beijing through Mongolia and then through Siberia. And they said, oh, you ought to talk to this woman over there. She uh, she's from Siberia. I said, really? I've never met anybody from Siberia. So uh, I went over and introduced myself to Maria Butina, and she had just sort of arrived not a month or so earlier and was studying at American University. So it was fascinating. Again, I was going to be spending a fair amount of time over there, and and she had a lot of information in terms of how, uh, you know, what to see and what conditions are like in Siberia and all that. So we would see each other occasionally go out to lunch or we'd bump into each other at parties or whatever. So I got to know her fairly, fairly well, actually. Um, she spoke fluent English and, um, and she was extremely pro-American, which was really amazing because she was, uh, she was born uh, in uh, 1989, uh, right at the end of the Soviet Union. And when Russia turned towards capitalism. So she was very pro getting the United States and Europe and Russia together and all that. And that was all real fascinating to me. And so, um, you know, and then uh, at one point she got, uh, uh, I I took this long trip, as I mentioned, on the Trans-Siberian. And then I took another, I took a a month-long cruise on a cargo ship, across half the world from Oakland to Sri Lanka uh, to look look into um, the supply crisis and all that. And then when I came back, I got together with Maria again. We had lunch in, at a, a Russian restaurant in, in Washington. And she told me that uh, the FBI was uh, interested in her. They've uh, There were a number of articles out about her. I had no idea because I was on a ship that didn't have any internet and all that stuff. So um, so she told me about it, and I was astounded since I knew her, and I knew she wasn't a spy, that was for sure, uh, having written about spies about 40 years. And um, um, 
and you know, I knew her background. I mean, it was she didn't have a spy's background; she had an educational background. So um, I started looking into the case, and there was nothing there, virtually nothing. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't like the big piece of evidence some joking text that she sent? There were, there were, there were again. It was this shiny apple. They were needed a Russian to arrest, so she was available. There, I have a long story in there uh, about how. Um, this person who used to uh, head uh, Overstock, this uh, online company, got together with her, uh, Patrick Byrne. And uh, it's a long, complicated story. I won't bother getting into it. But Patrick Byrne was sort of a... Uh, it, it, I've gotten to know him a bit. He's a bit of a wacko. He was one of the key people on, uh, on um, uh, the whole uh, January 6th, uh, uh, he didn't take part in the actual riot, but he was the one pushing for the, he was basically the financier for a lot of the questions over the uh, uh, the, the uh, outcome of the election. Anyway, he's a very paranoid type person. So after one quick meeting with uh, Maria Butina, where she said, how about, you know, if you come to Russia, you could give a talk about uh, Bitcoin, because that was his big uh that was his big deal. He knew a lot about Bitcoin. He was one of the world's experts in it. And um, uh, this was at a hotel in Las Vegas where uh, um, there were a number of people giving speeches, including um, Trump. So Maria goes up to Patrick Burton and says, uh, hey, uh, you know, um, this, you know, some of the students and people I'm with back in Russia would be interested to hear about Bitcoin if you wanted to come over there and and talk about it sometime. So it's, it's fairly normal for people to ask experts to to give talks, but um, he got very paranoid. So he and I interviewed him a number of times, and he says I, after that I went up to well I invited her back the next day to my hotel room, which is very suspicious. I mean you don't invite a beautiful woman to your hotel room for a meeting uh, unless you have something in mind. But anyway, so he invites her to his hotel room uh, the next day for, for lunch. And um, and he says, getting ready for this uh, meeting with her, I had all kinds of weapons prepared. I made a weapon out of some wood I had in, in, the, uh, in the room here, uh, like a coat hanger or something. And I always carry a gun with me just in case. And then I put the chairs in such a way so I'd be able to find out whether she was a seductress or whatever. Anyway, when, once it was all over, he told me, well, you know, she was just, a, you know, there was nothing suspicious about her. She was uh, she wasn't suspicious, but he had this long history with the FBI. So he thought, well, she might be a spy. So he calls up the FBI and tries to get the FBI interested in her uh, as being a spy. Well, they looked into her for several months and they said, there's nothing there. She's just a student. And um and then all of a sudden, Russiagate happened, and they had nobody else to go after. So they go back and they start looking at Maria Butina again. And again, there was nothing there. Uh, and so they made up a bunch of stuff. She happened to be a member of the NRA. Uh, she formed a, a gun group in Siberia, where she grew up, and then uh, a small one in Moscow. And then she um, joined the NRA over here. She paid her dues, whatever it was, I don't know hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars at the most a year. That was it. She just joined it. Uh, 
But the FBI uh, began leaking stories that uh, Putin was funding uh, 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 Trump through the NRA, uh, and she was the conduit. You know, it was just total nonsense. Uh, as later it came out, there was no money exchange. She had no money. She had to borrow money to go to college, to grad school. And uh, so there was no money transferred from Moscow to uh, to Trump uh, through the NRA and through Maria Butina or anybody else. So then the next thing was, uh, was she had to be a, seduct a seductress, uh, you know, a red sparrow. Um, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that's where I, I would just read this part of uh, the book. You write about this text uh, that was sent uh, from a friend of hers, a Russian public relations employee at uh, her gun rights organization in Moscow, saying, I don't know what you owe me for this insurance, uh, but they have put me through the ringer. And facetiously, uh, Butina replied, sex, thank you very much. I have nothing else at all, not a nickel to my name. And she puts the smiley emoji next to it. But that's taken as, oh, she's this, you know, Russian whore seductress. Yeah. So what the FBI does is they uh, they go through everything, all her uh, emails, all her cell phone. And, you know, she's a tw in her 20s. She posts everything, you know. Oh, you know, I saw Niagara Falls today or whatever. You know, she posts everything online. Uh, and uh, un unencrypted uh, online. And so the FBI spent months going over everything she had. And uh, for years, going back years, again, that post was like three years old. So they went back uh, a decade or, or more. And the only thing they could come up with uh, indicating she may have some, uh, uh, you know, that there was anything mentioning sex was that, which was a totally innocent uh, uh, email. So having nothing else to go on, uh, basically, they uh, they brought that into court and, and without saying what it was. So at the opening of the court, they said, we have evidence that uh, um, Maria Butina uh, offered to exchange sex for a position with a, a powerful organization or something like that, or a, uh, anyway, so the the press went with that. Uh, that's all they would say. Uh, they didn't uh, say where it came from. That's all they said was that she had sex. She offered sex uh, for a position with a powerful organization. And so all the press headlines everywhere in the world, as I write in the book, I mean, New Zealand, China, uh, everywhere, uh, you know, constantly at CNN and New York Times, Washington Post, everywhere. Uh, you know, she's a uh, a red sparrow. Um, and, you know, she's fit the mold. I mean, she had red hair. Uh, she was attractive. She was, uh, uh, she looked like somebody that slipped out of a movie. Um, so uh, everybody went wild. I mean, who cares? She's Russian. We don't care what we do to her. She's Russian. Nobody cares. Right, right. And then there was also, I just wanted to mention, uh, I guess she wrote um, an article or she had an article published in the National Interest calling for improved U.S.-Russia relations. Yeah. And, you know, the argument was, oh, well, you know, Butina asked this Russian official, uh, Torshin, to look at the article. And, you know, uh, the Russian official said it was very good. So that must mean that since she talked to this Russian official, she's a spy, which that yeah. seems like a huge leap. Well, that's what it was page after page of that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, the guy in Russia, the guy named Torshin, he happened to be in her gun group. I mean, that's why... 
they uh, they became friends. He had some position with the Russian bank. Uh, and this this obviously has consequences, right? Because like I said, she's now in uh, the Russian parliament and she could be making some very important decisions related to U.S.-Russia relations. And, you know, after what she went through, she's not probably a big fan of the U.S. Right. So just to finish up what about the the, the sex charges and all that. So for uh, the defense counsel, who uh, I knew pr- very well, I mean, we uh, we were very good friends and we talked about a lot of this stuff. And, and uh, the defense counsel was outraged uh, because they wouldn't say where that allegation came from, which was totally innocent. And so they left that out there for months. Then finally, they got the judge to agree uh, to force the uh, prosecution to say what that was based on. And uh, uh, the prosecution came out and said, well, it was this email we found three years ago when she was in Russia, and, and they laid it out. And the judge said, it took me five minutes to figure out that was a joke. So, But by now, with the internet being the way it is, anytime you go to Maria Butina's name, the only thing you're going to see is that she's a, you know, a sex seductress uh, uh, trying to sell sex for, for secrets or whatever, because they were all headlines. When three months later, when it finally came out the truth, it barely made you know a paragraph in any news organization. So, um, so it went on and on and on like that. And then uh, she's facing uh, 15 years in prison, and they had her in solitary confinement the whole time. Uh, and I would visit her in prison once a week. That was you know the maximum you could go there. So I'd see her there, and she um, you know she was extremely distraught. She's a grad student. She had a master's degree in uh, uh, from in Russia, and she's getting a master's degree here. And uh, all of a sudden, her world comes apart. She's in solitary confinement. Her parents are six thousand miles away in Siberia. She had no money, and um, and so uh, the uh, and again, like I said, she was in solitary confinement, and that was extremely difficult for her because she grew up in Siberia with, you know, big open spaces and she hated being com- confined to a, a tiny little little cell with no openings or anything. And, and so, I was going to say, this is happening now with uh, Chinese students as well, who are being targeted simply seemingly because they're Chinese. So, oh, they're Chinese, they must be spies. So yeah. this is spreading outward into- oh, yeah. the, I wrote know, about that uh, where they went after, you know, as soon as China hit the news, FBI would go out there and arrest a whole bunch of Chinese, you know, uh, 98% of them would, uh, there'd be nothing against them or, or anything. They'd end up dropping the case. Uh, and that's what happened in this case uh, with Maria Butina. Uh, they finally went to her. Uh, you know, they threatened her with 15 years in prison. She's in solitary confinement. Uh, it's the end of her life, basically. And they said, well, sign on the dotted line here. And uh, and you know you won't have, we will drop the the most serious charges. So she did. She agreed to plead guilty to the minor charge, the most minor charge on there it was conspiracy not to um, uh, not to uh, register as a foreign agent or something like that. So um, so she signed that, and uh, she was she had to do another six months, uh, and then was released. Uh, which was a total of a year and a half, basically. So the whole thing was was totally uh, what you'd expect if you 
you know, in the Stalin days or whatever of Russia. Um, so yeah, she she uh, was released. Finally, they deported her back to Russia, and uh, I was in, I went back to Russia at one point and I saw her there, um, and she got elected to the Duma, and um, you know, which is basically the the same thing. They have a parliamentary system just like uh, Britain does and whatever. So um, she got elected to the parliament, the Duma, and um, she's you know, very well known now in Russia because of the uh, publicity that came out of all the uh, activity here in the U.S. So, yeah, as I wrote in the book, I said, yeah, at some point, I mean, first of all, she's very popular over there because of this. Uh, she's a member of the Duma. She's in her early 30s. She's probably going to rise very high. One day she may be sitting in the in the uh, in, in the Kremlin. And wouldn't it have been nice to have somebody in the Kremlin that's friendly to the United States and Instead of somebody that we put up false charges and uh, threw in a, a, a solitary confinement. I mean, obviously she's she's angry and she's uh, against the U.S. because she saw the worst part of the U.S. when she was over here, and her country treated her extremely well. I mean, they did everything they could to try to get her out. So, so obviously it'd be the same way if uh, uh, you know you have an American in prison in in, in Russia for several years, like, um, um, uh, I just can't think of his name right now, but uh, he's over there. When he comes back to the United States- oh, that, that, I think it's he's an American Marine or something. Yeah, yeah American Marine. I you know, get mental blanks on names sometimes. So um, uh, anyway, yeah, so he's been over there for now four years. I mean, you think he's going to come back and say, oh, that, Russia's a great place, you know? Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that's the consequences of this. That and the fact that she's got to live her entire life knowing that anybody that goes to the Internet, the first thing they're going to see is that she's probably a whore or something. Uh, and uh, or, or uh, you know, a whore for espionage, which is horrible. And um, and so, yeah, that's why I spent a lot of time on this, because it's it's an example of what the FBI does a lot of times. As you mentioned, they do, they're doing it with uh, China to a large degree. There are numerous people that were arrested that had no business being arrested. They did it with Muslims. They, uh, they did it with Russians, with Maria Butina and so forth. So, um, and now they've got another case. Uh, sounds basically as, as bad as this one uh, going on in Florida. So, um, so that's one of the reasons I wrote this. Nobody else was writing about this, and and I thought it deserved to be written about. And I'm one of the few people I think that that you know has the ability to really get into um, what the intelligence community and the FBI are are really doing. A large portion of your book uh, deals with Israel, and also I think some other U.S. allies. Uh, for instance, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, when you talk about, you know, George Nader and the infiltration of the Hillary campaign, uh, can you talk about why do we have these sort of countries that are considered allies uh, that are spying on us like the UAE or like Israel? Well, they spy on us because they want to know what we're doing and what we're up to, and they hope to change uh, our policies one way or another. Um, I mean, we do it to uh, friendly countries overseas also. We spy on for foreign countries. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that countries shouldn't do that. That's what they do. It's just sort of natural. What I'm saying is that we ought to be able to catch them, or if we do catch them, 
to do something about them. And that's what we're not doing. So uh, just uh, during Russiagate, for example, as we've you know, exhaustively gone over here, the, um, uh, and just to back up for, for one second, because you did bring it up and it's important. Um, with regard to Maria Butina, I did talk to Mueller uh, and he said, we didn't go after Mueller because she didn't come under our jurisdiction. You know, our jurisdiction was uh, Russian influence. She didn't come under our jurisdiction. So she was never mentioned in, in the Mueller report. They never, she never had anything to do with it. So here, here this huge case was about how she was infiltrating the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, election. And yet the, uh, the task force, the special counsel, set up and spent two years looking into this, never found anything uh, that was uh, that made her uh, guilty of anything. So, so It's again, interesting because we heard all about Maria Butina, uh, but we didn't hear all about something like, say, Psy Group, this uh, former Israeli uh, private intelligence agency, which I think has closed down since, that I, I think was under investigation by Robert Mueller, but you don't hear anything about it. It's all Maria Butina in the media. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, the media doesn't like to write bad things about Israel. That just ha happens to be a fact, uh, as I point out in the book. So, um, yeah, so the uh, Psy Group was an Israeli private intelligence organization with connections to the Israeli military. And they came up with an enormously complex plan on how to throw the election. Uh, it was Operation Rome, I think it was the name of it. And uh, the idea was that they would uh, they'd have uh, uh, phony websites, phony news sites, all kinds of uh, influence operations in the U.S. Um, and uh, they it sounds they, similar to uh, the stuff that uh, Team Jorge is reported to have done. Uh, that, you know, the French reporters have been covering exactly, lately. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your audience probably has never heard of Team Jorge because the American press never wrote about. That, even though you had 30 news organizations around the world focusing on it. I, I'll get back to that in a second. Uh, but yeah, so the um, uh, you had a, a side group that came over and they offered this, secretly offered this plan. I mean, I actually uh, uh, have a copy of it and I uh, write about it in, in uh, Spy Fail. Um, it was an elaborate plan uh, on how they would throw the election to get Trump elected. And uh, but it was going to cost, I think, three or between three and four million dollars. And they weren't willing to the Trump people weren't willing to pay for that. So that was the end of that. Um, but later on, the uh, uh, the Netanyahu sent over a secret agent to um, um, infiltrate the or to collaborate with the uh, Trump campaign and uh, worked out a quid pro quo where they would give um, intelligence to the uh, to the Trump campaign, uh, just similar to the way uh, Psy Group was going to give intelligence to them. And um, and uh, in exchange, they what they wanted from Trump was a uh, an, an enormous concession. It was to recognize uh, Jerusalem as being solely part of uh, of Israel as opposed to being nego a negotiated uh, division between Palestine and, and Israel, which is what every other president in history is, has has uh, demanded. Um, and in the end, uh, uh, Trump went along with it. Uh, he he came out after a 
private meeting with Netanyahu in New York in his penthouse and said, "I'm uh, if elected, I'm going to recognize Jerusalem as part of uh, part of uh, uh, Israel, exclusively part of Israel, as capital of Israel." So, um, and and we'll move our embassy to uh, to Jerusalem. So that was a big win uh, for Netanyahu, obviously. And then Trump became president, and he 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 did what he said he was going to do. Um, so those are examples of of uh, Israeli spies coming to the United States, and the U.S. doing nothing about it. Nobody was arrested from Psy Group. Nobody was arrested from the secret agent that was. Sent over by this secret agent is this the one that's uh this is likely we're taught we're likely we can deduce this was um i think his name is isaac malho um well the way i wrote it was uh they uh, i mean i i again yeah, this isn't just some some guy i met in uh back of a garage and told me this this comes from documents that were released under the freedom information act from the justice department uh that included a um uh, a search warrant for the communications involving this secret agent, this Israeli secret agent. Uh, the FBI went to a judge, got a secret uh, got a, a secret uh, search warrant, and they filled out his long affidavit explaining exactly what this spy was doing, this, uh, this Israeli agent was doing. And so I have that. Uh, again, it was released under the Freedom Information Act. And uh, it shows all the emails between Netanyahu uh, or Netanyahu's uh, agent, the secret agent, and members of the Trump campaign. Now, uh, they redacted the name of the agent uh, from the uh, from the documents under the, you know, the Freedom Information Act search warrant and affidavit. They had most of the stuff in there, but they redacted the actual name of the of the uh, agent. Uh, so I don't know who it was. However, I, uh, I put a lot of uh, there are a lot of indicators in the uh, documents that pointed to somebody that was very close to um, uh, Netanyahu and somebody who actually worked uh, on the issues dealing with uh, Palestine and uh, John Kerry, uh, working with John Kerry, Secretary of State, on negotiation with the Palestinians. So um, the person that Netanyahu um, assigned to that mission was a guy named Isaac Moho. And uh, what was very interesting about the documents that were released, at one point, one of the emails uh, from the secret agent said, I have to go to, uh, uh, I'm having a meeting in Rome, uh, uh, emergency meeting in Rome, basically, uh, with the prime minister. Um, and so I just looked at what was going on at that particular moment in time, and there was a meeting between Netanyahu and John Kerry uh, over the whole Palestinian issue. So, you know, here's this guy that had to go uh, on an emergency mission to be at Netanyahu's side during these negotiations. And this guy, Isaac Moho, was the person who normally did that. Also, uh, I mean, he's been written about in the Israeli newspapers as being sent on secret missions by Netanyahu all over the world and being supported by the Mossad. So anyway, uh, whether he was the person or not, I don't know, but there are a lot of common denominators pointing towards he being uh, the person that was was named. Uh, I asked if he, I sent an email asking if he wanted to comment on that. I, I never heard back from him, so. One thing that uh, a journalist friend of mine wanted me to ask you is, uh, 
You write, Israel's version of the NSA, Unit 8200, which employs some of the most highly trained signals intelligence specialists in the world and is equipped with advanced intercept capabilities, may well have been surveilling Russia and WikiLeaks. And of course, you say this in the book as well as in the uh, adapted article from your book that's in The Nation, The Candidate, and The Spy. Um, It's talking about Unit 8200. Was that just speculation on your part or uh, like what? Why do you have yeah. that suspicion, I guess, is what they're well, asking. The FBI documents um, are key because what they say is that uh, uh, the secret meeting between the uh, Israeli agent and the secret conversations that began, they all began in uh, May of 2016, early, I think mid-May, early May, around that time period. Um and right after the first contact with the secret agent, um, uh, Roger Stone, who was a close aide to uh, uh, Trump, Trump. Yeah. he was the person that the secret agent wanted to use in order to get to Trump. So at the very first uh, meeting or very first conversation, I think it was, uh, they um, uh, right after that, the very same day, uh, Roger Stone began emailing, uh, or, or rather uh, began Googling uh, some very strange names, uh, including Guccifer and so forth, Guccifer 2.0. So um, uh, that and uh, several other names uh, uh, like uh, oh, uh, Wash Press or whatever it was, the, one of, a couple of the names that the Russians used to mask their their involvement in the uh, operation. So the only way that this Israeli could tell the uh, tell Roger Stone uh, about this, um, about these names and these details that he ended up Googling that very same day was if uh, somehow they were the Israelis were able to eavesdrop, on the um, on the Russians uh, doing this operation, um, and there's more and more indications as you read the uh, the emails between Roger Stone and the secret agent, indicating that they had uh, documents that showed that uh, that the Israelis had actually eavesdropped on the Russians and discovered that the Russians were eavesdropping and stealing emails from Hillary Clinton. So. Um, the reason the Israelis are able to do that is they have an extraordinarily uh, sophisticated uh, eavesdropping organization called Unit 8200, and it's their equivalent of the NSA. I mean, the NSA has given them a lot of help over the years, and they've developed this. Uh, they've got extremely talented uh, um, signals intelligence people over there. Um, Could they have done this without the NSA knowing, though? That that was another question someone asked. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly. uh, uh, It's another area that it was just too long to get into, but it would have been a fascinating area. Uh, And that's uh, if even eighty two hundred could do this, and they weren't really even a part of this. uh, You know, it's Israel, and this was between Russia and the United States. Why wasn't the NSA able to do the same thing and find out about this beforehand? Or if they did, why didn't they tell the the Clinton administration or I mean the uh, Clinton campaign and the um, uh, DNC that the Russians had their information? Um, eventually, the 
the Dutch penetrated, the Dutch also penetrated, Dutch intelligence, their equivalent of NSA, also penetrated Russia, uh, Russian intelligence. And uh, they were the ones who actually told the NSA uh, that the Russians have penetrated um, the DNC and Hillary Clinton. So you have the Israelis have penetrated them, uh, and you have the Dutch, which is not, you know, nothing compared to the United States in terms of size and sophistication in terms of technology. Um, both of them penetrated the uh, uh, Russians and found out that the eavesdropping was going on. Uh, apparently before NSA ever found out, our own intelligence agency. So, uh, but yeah, the 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 Israelis penetrated the the Russian um, uh, cyber uh, attack on on DNC and and Hillary Clinton, and and then they were using that material to try to help. Uh, Trump by saying specifically the sort of like could end of Israeli politics doing this. Uh, say that again. The the sort of like could party Netanyahu end of Israeli politics is yeah. sort of using this to kind of deal with Trump. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can say to Trump, oh, we'd like you to do this. We'd like you to, you know, uh, help us with uh, Jerusalem and, uh, you know, uh, agree to uh, turn Jerusalem into a uh, uh, you know, Israeli, uh, solely Israeli, but it's much better if you can actually go in there and do a quid, quid pro quo or an exchange. So that's what it was, was a, from the very beginning, the whole idea was here, we, we're going to give you a lot of stuff here, you know, and having access to the emails or whatever from Hillary Clinton, or at least access to the facts of when these things are about to be released and all that was extremely helpful. Uh, and they were having meetings with the secret agent all through the summer, right up until September, when Trump finally agreed to the whole thing with this private meeting with Netanyahu. So, I mean, it's all there. It's in the documents. It's in the uh, these are FBI documents, uh, affidavits that they presented to a judge um, and and, uh, and so forth. So th this isn't made up. It's not. Uh, but the question is why, uh, you know, they go out and arrest. Maria Botina, but they won't arrest a spy who uh, they know they have evidence, exact proof that he was working for the Israelis. So they've never uh, they've never done that, and they've never arrested uh, Roger Stone or anybody else involved with this. I mean, they arrested him for other things, but not for this. I was going to ask. It sounds like you know your view on RussiaGate. Uh maybe differs from both, uh, you know, the side that seems to believe in everything from the still dossier to uh, Maria Butino is a red sparrow. Uh, but you also sound like you disagree with the people that, and especially I know a lot of younger leftists that think this way about it, but they'll, they'll say, oh, Russiagate was all just a nothing burger. It seems like you uh, disagree with both sides. You, you think there was something there with regards to what Mueller was investigating, but also that there was a lot of BS and rumor mill stuff that muddied the waters. Yeah, there's two separate things you have to uh, take into uh, account here. Um, there was the hacking of the uh, of, of the DNC and Hillary Clinton, and I, I don't have any uh, dispute about that. I mean, I've looked into it myself. You know, I'm convinced that that took place. But that's that's one thing. The uh, RussiaGate was something that was different. Russiagate uh, and the whole uh, enabling of the 
uh, Mueller investigation, the special counsel, was something entirely different. Everybody knew that the Russians had hacked into Hillary Clinton. What Russiagate was about was uh, uh, all these allegations and conspiracy theories that the Trump campaign was colluding with the Russians. Uh, and uh, they came up with nothing. The Mueller uh, uh, group came up with nothing showing that there was collusion between the the Russians and, uh, and Hillary Clinton. What... <laughs> I mean, uh, the Russians and Trump. Um, but what I show in the book was there was collusion, but it wasn't with the Russians, it was with the Israelis. So you spend two years going after the Russians uh, and find nothing, and then you don't bother to do anything with the Israelis when you do find something. And that was the contradiction. It's what I wrote about in that uh, in Spy Fail, and it's what uh, was the cover story for The Nation magazine. There's just two more things I briefly wanted to cover because I know I've kept you over time here and uh, I appreciate your no time. Uh, I want to talk about the UAE. What's the UAE connection uh, to the topics you cover in Spy Phil? Because I feel like uh, that gets undercovered as well in the press sometimes. Yeah. Uh, again, I, going back to, to Russiagate, um, at the same time, uh, the uh, media and and the uh, Mueller uh, investigation is consumed with Russia and Russiagate and Russian spies and uh, you know being infiltrated in collusion and and uh, uh, all that uh, at the same time all that was going on they paid no attention to the fact that there were two spies in the Hillary Clinton campaign from the UAE United Arab Emirates uh, and again, I detail this completely in the book, and it's based on documents that came from the FBI. Uh, and uh, there are affidavits and uh, search warrants and, and uh, arrest warrants and so forth. Um, so what happened was uh, the crown prince of, uh, of the UAE, uh, was he's extremely powerful, extremely rich. He controls a lot of the uh, activity that goes on in the in the Middle East in terms of influence. He's one of probably one of the most influential people in the world, particularly in the Middle East. Um, but he's also very secretive. And um, so what he did was he he had a uh, a person that he works closely with who uh, does intelligence operations for him. And he assigned him <clears throat> to infiltrate the Hillary Clinton campaign. And this person was very capable. <clears throat> he spoke fluent English. He was uh, uh, born in uh, Lebanon, but he was a, a naturalized American citizen. And so he agreed to do that. And um, But the fact was, it, the way to do that is by donating millions and millions of dollars to a campaign. And then you get very close to the candidate. You sit with the candidate at dinner tables, you're invited to every single meeting <clears throat> and so forth. So um, so the Crown Prince did that with this, this one agent um, and uh, George uh, Nader was his name. <clears throat> so Nader needed a, uh, basically a sub agent because Nader's money would have been tainted if it came from the UAE. Um, you know, if, if he donated the money, uh, 
with his background, it, it just would have been rejected. So he needed a front man. And he found this guy uh, uh, in, in uh, Los Angeles who was very wealthy. Um, and he was basically a con man. He, he basically scammed, uh, scammed people out of millions of dollars through uh, this uh, check uh, or this credit card company. And um, so he used him as a front man. <clears throat> so the front man would uh, donate millions and millions of dollars. <clears throat> and then the two of them would be able to go to all these fancy parties and dinners. And, and, and that's what happened throughout the entire campaign. And so I have copies of the emails that the agent uh, sent back to the uh, his spy master, which was probably the crown prince. <clears throat> and so just like I had emails going back and forth between the Israeli agent and the uh, and Netanyahu and, and the uh, or Netanyahu's agent and, and the Trump campaign, I have the emails going back and forth between the agent uh, who penetrated the the Clinton campaign and his spy master back in the UAE. So it's fascinating looking at that. Um, and he would write things like uh, having a meeting with the big lady tomorrow. Can't wait to tell you all about it. Uh, uh, and they they even had a uh, several parties, private dinner parties in their house uh, for not only Hillary but Bill Clinton too. And the Clinton, oh, sorry. Um, the Clinton campaign uh, charged them a million dollars for these parties. I mean, they didn't make any bone about it. They basically said, if you want this. Uh, just these private parties. Yeah, that's right. If you if you want the private, I mean, there was no bones about it. If you want the private parties, it's going to cost you a million dollars. Um, and uh, it it wasn't anything subtle about it. It was like, okay, you want to have a private uh, cocktail party in your living room at your house with the with uh, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton? Uh, that'll be a million dollars. And then they paid the million dollars, and they had another one in Las Vegas, a private party. And they wanted another million dollars, and they gave it to them. There was only one time when there was uh, when when they wanted too much. Uh, uh, the spy wrote back to a spy master saying they wanted five more. They wanted five times more than we were asking than we were offering. Uh, which he didn't say the amount, but it sounded like they were wanting five million dollars or something like that. So you could talk about you just see the greed, the greed coming out here. And again, nobody knew about any of this stuff going on because they're all looking for Russians and nobody was looking for, and they're all looking at the Trump campaign and nobody was looking at the Hillary Clinton campaign and nobody's looking at the UAE. So it wasn't until more than a year after uh, the campaign that this was discovered and it was only discovered accidentally. Um, <clears throat> they uh, were, they stopped uh uh, George Nader for some other reason, and uh, they got his uh, cell phone, and his cell phone happened to have pictures of uh, children having sex, uh, these pornographic uh, pictures, and and it turns out that uh, that George Nader, the guy that was in on all these meetings and uh, uh, spent his entire campaign private meetings with Hillary Clinton was a serial pedophile. He'd been arrested numerous times for pedophilia in the United States. And yet neither the FBI nor the Secret Service discovered that. Uh, and here he is. He's one of the biggest campaign contribu contributors. Um, and 
the whole thing just reeks of, uh, of, of uh, you know, stench, uh, how the whole thing was handled. The very last thing I want to ask you about was uh, Arnon Milkham, because, uh, you know, it's funny, I've covered him on this show before, and I think <laughs> you're the only book I know of that has covered this uh, Israeli businessman, film producer, and spy. He was involved with such movies as 12 Years a Slave, JFK, Heat, Fight Club. Uh, but he's also involved in this smuggling operation involving uh, Krytrons, um, which could be used for nuclear weapons. And he also, I guess there's a connection to South African apartheid too. Can you just give a rundown of Arnon Milkan and why you felt it was important to devote a significant portion of the book to him? Yeah, I, I wrote a, a great deal about him, actually, uh, because nobody else had really focused on him. And because he comes under my jurisdiction as uh, as a uh, spy in the United States. So uh, just to give you a little background, the people that know about Arnold Mitchell, Milchan are uh, basically people who are associated with the film industry because he's one of the biggest names in Hollywood. In yeah, people like of, Robert De Niro knew him, et cetera, oh, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is, you know, if not at the top, he's very close to the very top of uh, Hollywood in, in terms of uh, being, uh, you know, a, a very notable person. He's uh, been a producer most of his life there. He produced, uh, he's one of the few people, I don't know, maybe, who knows if he's the only person, but he's one of the very few people who won two uh, best or, or two uh, uh, Best Picture Oscars uh, two years in a row. Uh, one for um, uh, 12 Years a Slave, uh, slave, and the other was for Birdman, two very popular movies. And he's been, you know, behind all kinds of movies, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and, I mean, just on and on, he, over 120 movies. Um, and so he um, uh, he's very well known in Hollywood, but at the same time, he's also very shy about uh, interviews and cameras and so forth. So he was very curious to me, um, and I'd heard rumors of his connection to espionage for Israel. So I decided to really do a, a deep dive and look into him, and um, I found him fascinating. So I traced him back from basically mid-60s, where... He was first recruited by um, uh, the um, uh, Israeli intelligence, which was an organization called Lukum, which focused on on spying on nuclear uh, weapons and and acquiring nuclear uh, materials. Uh, so he was this. Wait, what was the organization you said he was recruited by? Uh, is it was called Lukum. Uh, okay. uh, I'm not sure how they pronounce it in in Israel, but it's uh, basically it's called Lukum. It, it 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 was created uh, at the same time they developed a Demona, which was the uh, the nuclear um, uh, production uh, uh, nuclear nuclear weapons production in uh, in Israel. So they uh, uh, created a separate intelligence organization for two reasons: one, to protect the secrecy of Demona, and two, to acquire materials for Demona. Demona needed a very uh, uh, specific materials. It needed uh, um, highly enriched uranium, it needed uh, plutonium, it needed uh, uh, krytons, it needed a lot of things. And so the idea was that this organization would collect intelligence around the world to help build Demona. And 
also material to help build Demona. And that was where Arno Milchan came in. And Milchan's uh, role was to help um, Israeli intelligence. And one of his first jobs was to go to South Africa uh, during the apartheid period and become very good friends with the uh, with the South Africans because the South Africans had uh, a lot of uh, uh, uranium, for example, which the Israelis needed. And the uh, South Africans were also developing their own nuclear weapons, and they wanted help from Israel in terms of uh, delivery systems, such as missiles and so forth, as well as nuclear weapons, if they could get them. So, um, so there was this close relationship between Israel and South Africa, and Milchan was the uh, sort of the spy in the middle there. So um, he also became the chief weapons dealer. The South Africans wanted weapons. Israel had lots of weapons. A lot of the weapons they got from the U.S., and then they would secretly and illegally ship some of those weapons down to South Africa. So South Africa used a lot of these weapons during apartheid to to uh, abuse, put down, kill, and and uh, torture the uh, the blacks of South Africa. I mean, it was a racist apartheid state, and uh, their closest ally was Israel, and uh, their closest uh, agent, uh, uh, Israeli agent, was uh, Milchan. So Milchan became the top weapons dealer for. Uh, uh, South Africa um, and uh, working between Israel and South Africa. That made him millions and millions, tens and billions of dollars. He made lots of money on that. And then the uh, South Africans were uh, angry because the, the world was, uh, you know, coming up with uh, um, sanctions and all kinds of other things on them for being a racist apartheid state. And uh, so they wanted to change the, the their view around the world. They wanted to put propaganda around the world saying how fair they are to the blacks and how apartheid is not really a bad thing. And so Milton became their top propagandist at one point. Uh, so he wasn't only their arms dealer, he was their propagandist. And then they moved some of that propaganda into the United States. Um, and that's how he eventually became a producer in Hollywood. It started out with uh, uh, him working as the top propagandist for apartheid South Africa, which is ironic for somebody who eventually does a wins the top Oscar for uh, Twelve Years a Slave, uh, having pushed the arms for South Africa and then the propaganda for South Africa, so apartheid South Africa. So now he's in California. And he gets involved in the film industry. He wants to be a producer, and that's the key thing he wants. So eventually, he uh, gets to know um, uh, Robert De Niro, and that's his sort of in into the movie community. And he impresses Robert De Niro, and, uh, and he's got tons of money, uh, all kinds of money, uh, from his arms dealing and from his work uh, as a spy for uh, for Israeli intelligence. So. Um, so he uh, ingratiates himself with the movie industry in Hollywood. And at the same time, he's working for Israeli intelligence. And what Israeli intelligence wanted uh, were uh, things uh, that would help their nuclear program, their nuclear weapons program, um, things they couldn't get from the Pentagon or from uh, 
uh, companies in in uh, the U.S. because of the restrictions on what they could sell to um, Israel. So the idea was to create a front company, a phony company in California. And that's what Milchan did. He created this phony company called Milcon. Um, and he put a, a guy he recruited as a spy in there uh, or an agent in there, an American, a very uh, a, a, a person who had worked in the defense industry for a long time and knew a lot about uh, defense industries and so forth. So he ran Milcon. And uh, and then Milchin and 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 so forth would tell him what to what to send to Israel and what to order, and uh, so that's how it worked. So Milchin was the spy master basically, and uh, his agent was a, a guy. Excuse me, a guy named Smith. And Smith was a basically a nice guy. He had a family and all that. He knew what he was doing. He knew it was dangerous. He knew he shouldn't be doing it. He knew it was illegal, but he was doing it. And uh, then one day, uh, uh, there's a slip up. There's a burglary in the uh, in the front office, the front organization, this, milk, milk, uh, this uh, Milko company. And all of a sudden, now the FBI starts looking into uh, uh, the loss of material, and they start looking closely at Smith, uh, Milchin's agent, um, Richard Smith. So uh, Smith gets very worried, and he should have been worried. I mean, uh, both the uh, uh, FBI and the, and the CIA were now looking into him. And so eventually they they discover that he's been sending all these Prytons uh, 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 to Israel, Um uh, basically on behalf of uh, of Milchan. Milchan would order these Krytons. And what Krytons are, are the triggers. They're like the blasting caps for nuclear weapons. Every nuclear weapon um, has a Kryton, and it's uh, used as a, going right back to uh, Hiroshima and so forth. They That's where they developed the Krytons for. And there was one company that the only one company in the world that made Krytons. It was up in the Boston area. And so they would order these Krytons from them, supposedly for domestic uh, experimental purposes or whatever, and then secretly send them to Israel. I mean, you're talking about almost a thousand of them uh, sent to Israel for their secret nuclear weapon program. And so the uh, uh, FBI eventually caught on and uh, Smith was um, uh, arrested. Well, yeah, he was arrested, and then he went to trial. He was about to go to trial, but he escaped. He fled the U.S. just before that happened, and he fled to to Austria, and then he fled to uh, Spain. And he was spent sixteen years uh, on the lam. He was facing one hundred and five years in prison. And all that time, he's trying to get in touch with Milchin and saying, "Can you help me? Can you send me some money? You know, uh, you know, uh, I, I did all these things for you. Uh, can you help me out here?" And Milchin wouldn't help him at all. I mean, never sent him a penny. He just ignored him while he went off to make all these famous movies. And wow. uh, all this time, uh, Richard Smith is uh, hiding out in uh, in uh, uh, Austria and then um, uh, and then in uh, in Spain. But after 16 years, uh, he eventually gets caught. He makes a slip. He, uh, 
applies for Social Security, and that goes good because uh, he had very little money. Uh, and then eventually he got caught, uh, like I said, 16 years later, and he gets extradited back to the U.S. Again, he's facing a long time in jail, and he admits to everything, and he talk, talks all about Milchin's role and all right, that. Right, Yeah, I think that's and, important to note because, I, I mean, even back in the 80s, there was some writing about this stuff, like um, New York Times, May 18th, 1985, Israelis deny knowledge of export bar for device usable in atomic bomb. That was a Thomas Friedman article where, you know, Friedman goes to Milchan, and Milchan's like, oh, yeah, the, the Krytrons we're getting, that's for helping us to make... Uh, uh, you know, I, I guess colon uh, for a traditional Jewish dish, and he's he's trying to like say, oh no, well, the, he, none he, of this is for nuclear smuggling. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, I think at that point, I think he said, oh, well, it, you know, I have, I have like uh, three dozen companies, and you know, that might have been some company that I've never had anything to do with for a long time, or right. You know, he tried talking his way out. U.S. intelligence and the FBI knew exactly what was going on because they had all the paperwork. And they, uh, uh, you know, they could see uh, he was uh, in charge of this front company that they were sending it from. I mean, he was making the orders. There was no question about it. But um, the uh, the White House at the time didn't want to stir any uh, uh, stir up any trouble with uh, you know the pro-Israeli community. So they didn't want to arrest an Israeli. Uh, Milchin, especially a famous uh, Israeli. Um, so they made a deal. It was a secret deal. And basically, they threw everything onto Smith and they let Milchin off. And the deal was worked out. Again, this is the 80s now uh, by Netanyahu, believe it or not, who at the time was a uh, number two person at the embassy in, in Washington. So, so they worked out a deal. Uh, Smith disappeared. He went into hiding uh, in Spain, and then Milchin went back to work as a producer, and the whole thing was brushed under the rug until um, Smith got uh, caught. And then, uh, you know, so he would ha have less jail time. He uh, pled guilty, and he uh, uh, explained uh, Milchin's role in all that. So uh, the FBI wanted to go after Milchin. They wanted to talk to him, um, but... Again, somewhere up in the upper levels, uh, they were prevented from doing that. Which is, do you ridiculous. think that's in part because I'm, I'm assuming this happens all after the uh, the jo Jonathan Pollard case? Was it maybe just seen as too politically explosive to go after? Well, they did go after Smith. I mean, Smith was arrested. He was indicted. Right. He was brought back, and he went to trial. He pled guilty, and uh, he went to 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 prison. Uh, so, I mean, he. They didn't give him a break. They, they gave him a bit but of they, a break. They gave Milchan a break, in other words. Oh, they gave Milchan a, a whole, huge break. He was the mastermind. He was the master spy. He was the guy ordering the Krytons for his country. And they did nothing to him, uh, absolutely nothing uh, to him. It was a deal. It was a sleazy deal worked out. So, uh, uh, so then nothing happens. And then in uh, uh, early 90s, I mean, uh, uh, what was it? Early 2000s, uh, um, Smith gets arrested and then he pops a plea on uh, and, and tells all about Milchin. And then the FBI wants to go after Milchin, uh, question him, but somewhere some 
portion of the U.S. government, probably the White House or whatever, said, no, leave him alone. Don't touch him. He's an Israeli. Can't, can't stir up that uh, hornet's nest. So, um, so he's free and clear. So here uh, his, his uh, agent is in prison and, and he's going happily ever after making billions and billions, eventually $4 billion dollars. Uh, making these movies and um and then uh uh smith eventually gets out of prison and all that and it's all you know nothing's happening but milton's got this sort of ego um and you know he does these movies about spies james bond kind kind of movies and uh but he's looked at as oh this he's a nice little producer or whatever uh when he knows deep down that he's a really far more of a spy than James Bond and all that. You know, he's done some really dangerous stuff in, in, uh, in South Africa, other countries in the United States. So uh, so he has a sort of spy inside him that wants to get out. And there, there's a TV program in Israel uh, that's broadcast. It's a local program. It's broadcast in Hebrew in uh, only in Israel. Uh, so they offered him a chance to come on to do an interview. And he figured nobody else in the U.S. would ever see this. And he, he'd be able to say what a hero he was for the Israeli public. And he goes over there and he basically admits all these things, the stuff in South Africa. And uh, and uh, he's got uh, Robert De Niro sitting right next to him. And uh, and so the interviewer asked him, asked him about the uh, Krytons, or asked him about the... Uh, the secret uh, espionage and so forth. So um, De Niro pipes up and he says, oh yeah, he told me about that years ago. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, he said there were these uh, these little things, you know, uh, and, and then uh, Milton says the Krytons. <laughs> and De Niro says, yeah, Krytons, Krytons. He says, yeah, I he tells me he did it for his, for his country. And I accepted that. So... <laughs> And then, you know, Milton doesn't say anything. Oh, oh, I didn't say that. Oh, I, I didn't do that or anything. So, so the host was asked afterwards, you know, wasn't that amazing, you know, that uh, Milton uh, and, uh, said all that? He said, yeah, I couldn't believe he admitted all that stuff. But again, it was on this Israeli television show. Um, so he goes back to the U.S. And somehow, somewhere, somewhere in the State Department, somebody saw that. And uh, he had a 10-year visa. That's how he was able to live in the United States. He was never a U.S. citizen. He was always an Israeli citizen who had was given a 10-year visa that don't come around very often, uh, apparently. So, um, so he was given a 10-year visa, and then all of a sudden he gets back, and that somebody in the State Department canceled his visa. So he gets a notice that his visa is canceled. Well, he lives in California. He does all his movies there. He's panicking. So he gets Netanyahu to... Uh, 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 intervene with uh, John Kerry uh, to get him his visa back. And so he sets, Netanyahu sets up this meeting with Kerry uh, uh, and, and uh, Milchin, and he apparently gets his visa back. But now Netanyahu uh, is a guy that wants favors for, for uh, uh, doing something. He doesn't do them for nothing. Um, so uh, all of a sudden, Milchin's on the hook for favors. And uh, Milchin ends up giving him uh, what turns out to be a quarter million dollars worth of 
uh, jewelry uh, for his wife, uh, uh, champagne, pink, expensive bottles of Dom Perignon, uh, space, uh, you know, cases and cases and cases of Dom Perignon, pink champagne. The so it expensive. sounds like Netanyahu was like, I helped you out now. You better roll out well, the red exactly, carpet yeah. for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> So Milton was, um, you know, giving all this reluctantly. He hated doing it, but he was uh, doing it. And, you know, so Milton was pretty confident. You know, he'd never get a knock on the door from the FBI because, uh, you know, he knew he had like a, a free pass from the FBI for whatever he does. What he never realized was that the Israelis might go after him. The Israelis might knock on his door. And that's what happened. The Israeli... Uh, 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 justice system. Their uh, um, uh, their head of the corruption unit uh, decided to go after Milchin, and uh, right because they're going. They were going after Netanyahu, so they would. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so they were threatening to to uh, um, you know have him charged uh, with serious charges, bribery, and so forth. But. Uh, uh, they worked out a deal, a plea agreement, so that uh, Milton would testify against uh, uh, Netanyahu and say, yeah, I, I didn't give these things voluntarily. He, he basically demanded all these, this quarter million dollars worth of, uh, I mean, one of them was a $40,000 diamond-encrusted uh, bracelet for his wife, uh, for uh, Netanyahu's wife. So, um, so then they arrested uh, Netanyahu. They, uh, uh, and they charged him with the, the bribery, uh, as well as several other. There were three major um, charges against him, and, and Milchin was one of them. So so once they, uh, you know, once they uh, arrested, uh, uh, or once they charged Netanyahu, uh, that became a very serious deal, and he lost the election. He eventually got reelected, but uh, as of today, he's still facing that trial. He's still facing trial for, uh, uh, you know, for um, bribery and uh, other charges. Uh, um, and that's one of the reasons why everything that's happening in Israel today is happening, because he wants to change the judicial system, as a lot of people suspect, or what a lot of people suspect is he wants to change it so that uh, they won't... Um, uh, he'd be able to get rid of his trial. He'll be able to get rid of the charges against him. So it all goes back to that, you know, if you trace it back, it all goes back to that uh, that interview that Milchin gave uh, years and years and years earlier. Wow. So that, that's one of the reasons it's such a long and complicated story, beginning back in the mid-60s to going on right as we're speaking here, uh, uh, that I do donated uh, or devoted a fair amount of time to that uh, chapter. So yeah. in closing, because I kept you long here, I want to let you go. Uh, in closing here, uh, one criticism I've seen of the book, and I don't think it's in good faith, is I'll see reviews saying, I did not expect this to be an anti-Israel screed. I don't think it was an anti-Israel screed. I... I you know, I don't think it was an anti-North Korea screed, even though you uh, have like three chapters. The whole first part of the book uh, is about North Korea and the movie The Interview. Uh, I, I think you go after a lot of different countries and you're not necessarily making the biggest of moral judgments on all these countries. So what do you say to the people that have 
sort of tried to say, oh, this is just an anti-Israel uh, book. Well, it, it's an anti-spy book. If the spies happen to come from Israel, I'm going after Israel. If they come from the UAE, I'm going after the UAE. If they come from Russia, I'm going after Russia. If they come from North Korea, I'm going after North Korea. If you don't want me to write about Israeli spies, don't send spies to the United States. It's that easy. But if you do send spies to the United States, uh, I'm going to write about them. And I'm going to write about them in further books, or somebody else is going to write about them. So, uh, you know, if you send spies someplace, they may get caught or they may get written about. That's... Uh, well, it's your job as a journalist to cover yeah, exactly. these things. You know, that's that's write, the other... Write, write all about spies, but say, oh, I can't write about Israel. I mean, uh, Israel to me is just another country. I have no connection to it whatsoever. I don't have any more connection to Israel than I do to the UAE. I'm going to write about UAE. I'll write about Israel. And if you don't like it, then uh, don't read the book. That's the other thing I've, I've heard about the book where people will say, well, he, you know, James is, is looking at all the... Uh, you know, the failures of counterintelligence. And, you know, why is he talking about the successes? And I'm like, well, there's like probably, you know, hundreds of different books in the past few years well, alone not just that, that are about the successes. American taxpayers pay a lot of money for public affairs people. Uh, and uh, that's their job. That's what they do. Their, their sole job is to tell the public what a great job the CIA does or the FBI does or the Department of Commerce does. Uh, their job is not to go out there and tell you all the problems. You know, I don't get paid by the U.S. taxpayers. Uh, the taxpayers pay for people, a whole fleet of people, to tell you how great a job the FBI is doing or whatever. Um, they're never going to tell you all the bad stuff about uh, uh, the shadow brokers or whatever. That's where I come in. That's what you know. I've been doing for all these years. It's what. What's well, what your job is as a journalist? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I, I'm not going to write a book how flattering the FBI is. That's their job. You know, you think they did a great job? Fine. Send out a press release. Uh, um, my job is to tell you what they're not telling you. So that's yeah. So I'm not going to waste uh, half. I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to do half the book on how good the FBI is and how good it is bad. Uh, uh, that's just not how it works. Well, I want to thank you again, James Banford, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, anything uh, you you hope that my listeners get out of this conversation, and what do you hope they get out of Spy Phil when they uh, pick it up from the bookstores? Well, I, I hope they learn a lot about what they haven't realized about uh, spies. Spying is extremely interesting. It's a very, you know, you're talking about the probably the most interesting aspect of society. That's why there are so many movies and TV shows and books uh, written about spies. Uh, well, uh, you know, I have a way of writing that's sort of uh, uh, stylistic. In other words, I don't write fact, fact, fact. I write stories about these spies. So I think the public would find them very interesting because, first of all, it really happened. Second of all, they've never learned about these things. And third, you know, it's very damaging to the U.S. society when people can steal cyber weapons and half a billion pages of the most highly classified documents and so forth. And why haven't they been caught or why haven't certain spies been caught? So I think those are the key reasons why I think it would be both interesting and also enlightening in terms of uh, why somebody would uh, want to read it. Well, thank you again, James Banford. And I hope everyone checks out the book Spy Phil. Thank you so much. Well, great, JJ. Thank you very much. Great being on your show.
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Bamford, author of Spy Fail. Spies, moles, saboteurs, and the collapse of America's counterintelligence. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.